But I want to start with a real-life drama this morning. This woman was writing a letter to something like a Dear Abby, and, and this is her letter. She says, I got married two weeks ago, and I can't decide on a surname. She says, my surname is Peg, and my husband's surname is Leg. She said, we have four children between us, two pegs and two legs. And because we don't want to change their names, we were thinking about hyphenating ours to Peg Leg. Only problem is that we can't say it with a straight face. Last names. That's what we're talking about today. What is our last name? Our last name is Church. Surnames. Uh, it's interesting that really last names didn't begin until medieval Europe when um, populations and villages grew to a point where they needed last names. <laughs> Too many people had the same name, and so they began to distinguish families by last names. And of course, we probably know that they developed them around locations, such as where a person was from, like Yorkshire or York, um, person from York or Yorkshire. They also revolved around occupations, of course, like baker or blacksmith, um, and some around nicknames like Stout or Short or Longfellow, um, and then some around characteristics of such a person, uh, such as the name Tawny. Uh, comes from someone who had a tanned complexion. <laughs> Clearly, there's been something that's happened through the generations of the Tawny name, and I don't, yeah, it doesn't really fit anymore. But so with the advent of the internet, of course, we can all probably Google our name <laughs> and find out a little bit of the history. That's how I found out mine, so it might not be true, actually. But, but uh, here at LCC, our last name, again, is church. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, um, what does it mean that we're a church? What does it mean to be a church? And I'm going to start today with the words of Jesus. So if you want to turn to Matthew 16, this is a great starting point to talk about this topic because uh, Jesus here talks about church. And it's really one of the few places where he mentions the word church. And I think it's a great place to start to begin to get a handle on when Jesus talked about church, what was he talking about? So Matthew 16, I'm going to just read um, verses 13 through 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is a very significant conversation when we talk about church because it's Jesus here beginning to talk about this thing that no one really fully understood. We certainly knew in the Old Testament there were assemblies and there were gatherings, and, and so there was some idea of, of gatherings of people and who had a sense of, hey, we're together, we're kind of following God. Um, but really, this is significant because it's a real turning point in church history where we're going to begin to see that the church is going to be built in a different way. So there are two specific things that we learn about church from these words. And the first one 
that's very significant is that the church is built on Peter's confession. What is his confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's significant. That's what the church is built on. And one of the things that we say around here, and, and people sometimes who, especially visitors, come and talk about membership, and we say, well, we don't really have membership. This is really one reason why, because we believe that if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and you have given your life to Him, and He is the leader of your life, He is the Lord of your life, you are a member of the church. So who are we <laughs> to make some other bar, to make some other expectation? We believe that the church is built on this confession. And so a question for us today and for each one of us who are sitting here is, is that your confession? Have you believed? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Is He the Lord in your life? Is He the one that you have given your life to and that you said, I want to follow Him regardless of the cost? It's really the first question for us this morning is to ask yourself, am I a member of the church? Do I believe what Peter has said here? The second thing we see in this passage that's very significant is that Jesus is the builder of the church. He's the builder. He says that I will build my church, and he owes on to say that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it, against it. We can be confident that the true church is under the authority of Jesus, and the church will last forever. The gates of hell, death, cannot destroy the church. This gives us a lot of confidence because if Jesus is building the church, then it will survive regardless of what we as fallen human beings do to it. If you've ever been in a church history class, you know that through the centuries, many people have tried to destroy the church, and some of them well-meaning, right? <laughs> well-meaning people, all these different arguments and different things that have gone on throughout history but we can be confident that Jesus is the one who is building the church even today. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not up to us. It's Jesus who will build the church. And then the third thing that I want us to look at is, is if Jesus said he was going to build the church on Peter, what did he mean? Um, it's interesting. We don't know what Aramaic word Jesus used here. That word is lost to us in history. But we do know that Matthew when translating the word church, use this word, this Greek word, ecclesia. And it literally means a called-out assembly. So Matthew understood somehow that the word that Jesus was talking about in Aramaic was this word ecclesia, this Greek word ecclesia, called out. That's the literal meaning of it, is called-out assembly. And it's interesting that this, I think, really helps us understand the church in a very significant way, the question becomes, what are we called out of to become a church? And if we look at 1 Peter 2.9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think this gives us a great picture of what we've been called out of. We've been called out of the darkness. The blindness that we had has been removed so that we can now see. What is it that we get to see? We see that Jesus Christ, He's the Messiah, He's the Lord, He's the King, 
He's the son of the living God. That blindness has been removed, and we now have come into a place in our life where we now believe that. We've been called out of darkness, and we're now in the light. We are the church. We are the church. We are the called out ones. We too often, I think, say things like, I am going to church, right? Meaning I'm going to a certain building. There's this church that meets at a certain time in a certain place, and I'm going to it. But it's important for us to note that the people are the church. We are the church. The word church means, again, we, the ones who are called out. So as we look through the rest of the New Testament, we see the church beginning to take shape in a lot of different forms. We see the church meeting in homes. We also see the church meeting in temple courts. But it's significant that the church doesn't have just one form to it. It's not about specific types of meetings or specific buildings. It's about the people of God gathering together. And that's what we need to keep reminding ourselves of. And so when we think of church, it's us, for better or for worse. (laughs) So when you look in the mirror in the morning, right, you can say, yeah, I'm the church. I'm part of the church. I'm the church. I'm in the church. When you look around here today, you can look next to you and look at these people. You are the church. We are the church. It's not about a building. It's not about an event. It's about how we live together as a body. And so we want to understand that as a church, we are to be a reflection of Christ. And so first and foremost, what we want in the church is to understand that we are here to glorify God. Foundational, the foundational principle of the church is foundationally to be worshipers. We worship God in spirit and in truth. We are to live our lives in such a way that we reflect His glory. And we do that as we understand how to be the church, how to live together as a church. We reflect His glory. And that's the foundational principle. But I also want us to think about, as the New Testament goes on and writes about the church and we see different aspects of it, um, I, I brought some props today because I wanted to keep you awake. But these props are really going to give us some simple illustrations about what is the church and what aspects do we see in the New Testament about what church is. And so the first one, maybe the most obvious one, is I brought a wash basin. So I want you to turn to uh, John 13, and we're going to look at this passage, John 13 and beginning in in verse 12. I'm going to talk about uh, this wash basin. What does it represent for us as a church? What is it that Jesus wants us to understand, I think, about the church? It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So this, of course, is the picture that we get of Jesus 
washing his disciples' feet, this amazing show of humility. It shocked his disciples. They had never understood a leader who would do that. Jesus sets the tone, I believe, in this little exercise with his disciples for church, I believe, for the history of the church. I think this is a tone-setting passage and a tone-setting event in the life of the church where he is showing us that humility, humility is what needs to define our relationships. And in another book on uh, the church, if you will, the whole book of Ephesians, you know, Paul is really focused on the church. He, again, in chapter 4, picks up on this same theme, and he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, how? With all humility. 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 That's foundational to the church. And so, if we want to understand how we are going to be the church, we need to understand this concept of, of humility. What if the church made humility its highest priority? But maybe a more personal question is, what might need to change for you in order to be more humble, to participate in this way in the church? Mother Teresa, of course, is probably one of the more famous people we'd be familiar with who has lived this life of humility. And here's a statement she made that I think is very significant. She says, we must not drift away from the humble works because these are the works nobody will do. It is never too small. We are so small, we look at things in a very small way. But God, being almighty, sees everything great. Even if you write a letter for the blind man or just go and sit and listen or if you take the mail for them, or you visit somebody, small things, or wash clothes for somebody, or clean the house. Very humble work. That is where you and I must be. For there are many people who can do big things. There are very few people who will do the small things. It is the small things that sisters and brothers do. We can do very little for the people, but at least they know that we love them, and that we care for them, and that we are at their disposal. I love that last statement, we are at their disposal. It's a great definition of humility. Whose disposal are you at? Who are you willing to serve at that level where they call or they have a need or you see a need and you go and you respond regardless of what it might cost you, regardless of whether anybody ever notices it? Humility is doing the small things the things that really, in reality, no one else wants to do. So I think that's foundational when we want to understand how do we be the church. We are the church when we live in humble relationships toward one another, where we, we are willing to see other people as greater than us, and we're willing to take on the task, the task that maybe nobody else wants to take on in order to make a difference in their life. Well, second image I got for you, is rubber band, okay? All right, look at that. I'm going to put somebody's eye out, right? <laughs> yes, I hear up front here, yes. So we're kind of a rubber band. Well, we've already seen that Jesus says he will build his church. But now it's interesting that we see within the process of him building his church, it, we're called to build each other up. And we see this thing in the New Testament a lot, this word to build. And so First Thessalonians 5.11, for example, says... Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. And then again, Ephesians 4, 
in verse 12, he says, from the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What's a ligament? I know that a ligament is this thing that provides support. A ligament is like a rubber band. It's stretchy. It's elastic. It's tissue that connects bone to bone. It's what ties and unites these bones together. It's a bond between two bones. And so what really we're called to do is to provide this support for each other. And it says everybody needs to do their part. There's something that we need to do in the church. We, if we're going to be the church, we have to be a ligament. And again, ligament doesn't sound exciting, doesn't sound you know, really enticing. It goes back to that humility thing. But what does it look like to be a supporting ligament in the church? What does it look like to do your part? Because without ligaments, again, our bodies fall apart. So the picture here is saying us that each one of us has to find that support role, that place where we are going to support somebody and play a role in building them up. And so a question becomes, I think, a lot of this revolves around our gifts, right? Our, what are our gifts? How does God want to use the way He's put us together and how the Spirit flows through us? How can that be used to support the church? Things such as hospitality. Do you tend to have a gift of hospitality? Hospitality is a great gift for providing support. Even here on Sunday morning with welcome team or coffee bar, hospitality, it's do you have a sense of you like to welcome, you like to greet, you like to invite people into your space, and you're comfortable doing that. Your hospitality, part of the gift of hospitality is you're able to create space so people can come near you. The gift of mercy, what a great gift, the gift of mercy, people need mercy. What does it look like to provide that listening ear, that shoulder to cry on? Do you have that gift of mercy where you can move towards people? I'll say if you have that gift of mercy, one of the places we love to see that gift used around here is in our cell groups. It's a great gift for cell groups. Cell groups need that kind of support. Teaching. Maybe you have a gift of teaching. Maybe that's how you see yourself supporting this body, and that's how you support and connect. So we all have this role. We have to wrestle, though, with are we willing to live that out? Are we willing? Are we willing to say, what's my part? We are the church. The church isn't, isn't this thing out there apart from us. We are the church. Each one of us is the church. Each one of us is a ligament. What role are you supposed to be playing in the church? Well, that brings us to the third thing I brought, which is first aid kit. First aid kit. A third aspect of being the church for one another is this idea of what the Bible uses as word equipping. In Ephesians 4.12, it says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church. Is that word again, to build up the church. So as we equip one another we again build up the church. And so this idea of equip, it's an interesting word. Um, it's an interesting word, equip. And the word is used in Mark 1.19. And there it is used in a very different context. It's used with the idea of mending nets. So nets that have got holes in it, you mend them back together to make them whole again. And this word equip, then also in uh, classical Greek, it's a word really used in the medical field. Um, it's a word talking about a, setting a broken bone. 
It's this picture that Paul, I think, is trying to give us, this idea that to equip somebody else is to bring healing, to mend them, to play a role in helping them understand how they need to be healed. Galatians 6.1 picks up on this similar theme where it says, if another Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. So to be church means that we have a healing ministry to one another. We're responsible for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. We're responsible for each other. And when someone's hurting, when someone's struggling, we have a role here to bring them first aid, to equip them by coming alongside and providing what they need to be mended. Again, our role really is, I like to think of it as first aid, is our role is really to maybe put the bandage on or to do something kind of to, to get something started. But we have to remember that really Jesus ultimately is the one who heals them. So to be an equipper in many ways is for us to come alongside to bring some restoration, to lend a helping hand, knowing that ultimately Christ can then do his work and bring them to completion. So sometimes that means helping someone who is hurting find hope. Sometimes it means speaking truth to someone who's gone off track and needs to be restored to the truth. Many times it means listening to the needs of one another and considering, how can I help that person live more and more with the goal of knowing Christ as their top priority? Again, this is where the challenge is with equipping. It's a, it's a kind of a two-edged sword. At times it's it's encouragement, coming alongside someone who's hurting and bringing encouragement, but sometimes it's exhortation, it's challenge. You see, the goal isn't to help people feel better, the goal is to help people know Christ. And knowing Christ sometimes is painful. Knowing Christ sometimes means we have to come along and bring some harder words for people that they are having a harder time maybe hearing. But the work of mending is a deep work. It's a work that God wants to use you for. If you can get beyond the idea that mending or equipping is a set of answers, it's not that. It's not just coming with a set of answers. It's not just coming with a set of theological principles. We understand that mending or equipping is really helping someone on their journey discover Christ in a deeper way. It involves some answers at times. It involves some theological principles, certainly. But we have to, use, to bring those into the picture in a way that is really got this heart that says, I want to I mend, I want to equip, I want to help you become whole again. You see, we are broken people who need mending. We need a community where we can come clean about our brokenness, where we can meet other broken people who recognize they also need mending. And really, it's through then the ministry of the Spirit who uses broken people that we begin to experience a mending and equipping, a completeness in our lives. I want to say this again. It's important to understand that mending, equipping, to equip somebody isn't to take their life and somehow put it all back together in some way that just is like, oh, now they feel better. No, no, mending, equipping is really about equipping them in such a way that they now have a deeper passion for Christ. That's what equipping means. So they become complete in Christ, 
not just feel better about their life right now, but they're becoming more and more complete. So question for us is, what if you took the role of mending in someone's life? What is that going to look like for you to really take that seriously? We are the church. So who is it that God has brought into your world that you are called to mend, to equip, to play a role in helping them become complete in Christ? And the question of, are you willing to live at that level? (laughs) It's a whole new level many times for us to live at. Because part of this mending and this equipping is you really lead with your own brokenness is how you do it. It it comes out of your own brokenness. It's it's not, oh, I got my life together and now let me show you how it's done. No, it's no, I'm, I'm, I'm broken with you. Let me share a little bit about my brokenness and how I've seen Christ make a difference in my life as a model, as an example, and then let's come together and talk about how Christ is bringing you through a season of brokenness and what that might look like for you to hear His voice more clearly right now. How can I help you hear His voice and hear what He's really trying to say to you? There's this great picture in the Scriptures, I think, over and over again about mending or or bringing healing it's, it's, we are all wounded healers. And it's our woundedness that oftentimes is what brings the greatest blessing to other people. We need to be able to grasp that when we think about this idea of equipping and, and doing that in someone's life. And then that brings us to the fourth image, uh, which is a, this isn't going to be really out there, I suppose, but it, you'll remember this one. It's a canning jar, canning. This time of year, a lot of people are canning, right? Well, I should say a lot of people. Okay. If, you live in, if you live in the rural areas, right, there's a lot of canning going on out there. Um, but what's the point of canning? Well, the canning is to take something and preserve it, right? It's once you put it in here and you seal it, in theory, right, it'll be preserved for centuries. It'll go through the apocalypse. It'll make it forever. Now, of course... They actually say when you can something, you really shouldn't have it for more than a year, but eh, I don't believe them. But here's the point. The church, we are the church, and the church has a mission. I know you're thinking I'm a little bit crazy here, but I want you to hang with me here. Uh, we started this morning by saying that the literal meaning of the church is called out ones. What are we called out of? Well, we're called out of darkness. Once we were blind, but now we can see. The church from the beginning of time then has always had a mission, and that mission is always involved this idea of calling other people out of darkness and inviting them into the light. There's a letter that was written around 100 AD. Um, it's an unknown person who wrote the letter, but they're describing the nature of this new religion they call Christianity. <laughs> and Today, this letter is called the letter to Diagnetus. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's, here's, here's the letter. It's a fascinating letter written about the church. Um, and the writer of this letter was really impressed with the early Christians. And, and um, he, what he said is they have a, a wonderful and striking way of life. But here's a portion of the letter he wrote. He said, Christians marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not commit infanticide. They have a common table but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws, 
and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. To sum it up, as the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The line that I want us to focus on in this letter that was written back in 100 AD about Christians is, the soul is in the body, so, as the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. It's a very fascinating statement, and I think it says a lot about the Christians in 100 AD, about how they were living their lives in the world and being on mission in the world as a preserving force. And this is really picked up in, in Matthew chapter 5, um, I believe gives us a good uh, idea as to why, why we're to do this. And this is um, where Jesus, again, is talking, is from the Sermon on the Mount, and He says, "'You are the salt of the earth, for if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house.'" In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The mission, we are the church, and we are to be in the world as a preserving agent. We are salt. We are light. We are to bring light to the world. We are to dispel the darkness. And so the question becomes, how do we as the church go live in the world as a preserving agent, not to be contaminated by the world, but to infiltrate the world and have a preserving effect on it. How do we bring life to the world around us? We have life. We talked about that, our first name, life. We have life in us. So how do we bring life to the world, to our communities? What is that going to look like to bring that preserving life we also know that we have been freed from the bondage of sin. So what does it look like for us to bring freedom to the world around us? How do we engage the world as a, as a preserving force? I think there's always two extremes that we're all tempted towards as the church, right? We're tempted to run away from the world and just create the church in its own little space and not worry about the world, or there's a temptation to just run so hard into the world that we've lost the preserving effect on it, and our lives no longer really impact it because we've kind of walked away from Christ in us, and we just are living in the world now. And that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge for all of us to say, what if the church lived out their values in front of a watching world? What is that going to look like? What's it going to cost? What does it mean? I think we've been talking a lot around here over the last year or so and talking about this idea of missional, this idea of what does it mean for us to just do simple things with our neighbors, you know, have a conversation with your neighbor. That's the process of being a preserving force. What does it mean to reach out to the needy in our, in our town, 
What does it mean to provide for practical needs? That's being a preserving force. See, we preserve in two ways. We preserve by, one, it's, it's just practical stuff. We look at the life of Christ, and so much of what He did was, was healing people and practically helping people in very practical ways. So that's part of us being a preserving church. We are the church who needs to be out there doing that. And then secondly, we have a gospel witness. We have this confession of faith that we have made that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And the world also needs that message because that is a message of preservation for them and for eternity. And so as the church, we need to be wrestling with how do we do that? How do we as the church go out and impact our world? So as we've been talking today about the church, we are the church. We are to be doing these things together. We are the church that has to wrestle, I think, with humility. What does it mean to be humble toward one another? We have to wrestle with being a a supporting ligament to each other. What does that mean to support and play our part, make sure we're investing. We are to be a healing community. We are to provide an equipping. What does it mean to mend? How do we become a church that mends? And then we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be a preserving agent in the world. So those are just maybe some high-level things about when I think about church and what does our last name mean. It mean that's what it means. We are be doing these things, both in our body and and in our communities. So I want to end today, I, um, I have a video. I, I have someone here who's going to share. She's been in this church for 20 years. And um, what I've been saying is maybe kind of organized thoughts, and in some ways uh, you can kind of hear in one way, but what she's going to share, I think, is really the heart. I want you to hear the heart of what it means to really be the church. So go ahead and play that video. I think that says a lot about what it means to be church in a real way. It's messy. You can hear all these principles that have come out. We are the church for each other. We are responsible. Um, I want to close with, um, there's an old hymn, and I know we don't tend to do hymns, although we did the doxology today, but uh, called The Church is One Foundation, and there's two... uh, I'm going to read two stanzas of it. Um, I'm going to read these, and, and I guess what I want you to hear in reading these is the significance of the church. Jesus, Jesus, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is the program that Jesus wanted to have, the church. This is it. There's nothing different. There's nothing new. There's nothing. We're not looking for. It's, it's the church. And I want you to know that because of that, this has been a significant thing in my own personal life as I have journeyed in my own growth to the point where I've gotten frustrated at times with the church, the people. At times, you know, it's hard. There are times where you feel like it's not working right. But at the end of the day, it always comes back to this reality that the church is what Jesus is really wanting us to be about, is building the church and to build one another and to understand how to do that together. It's significant. It matters. 
So I want to read this uh, as I close. It says, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is worth with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son Jesus Christ who came and died for our sin so that we could have life. And not only did he give us life, but he also established the church, this place where we can grow, a place where we can love each other, a place where we can understand what it means to really follow you. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for the church, and we pray that we here at LCC would live out what it means to be the church in this community of Hilliard so that we can not only bring nurturing to this body, but that we can also bring the mission to the community around us. So we pray this in your name. Amen.